0: The Presidencies of the United States is a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to the Presidencies of the United States. I'm your host, Jerry Landry. In the last episode, I was joined by Matt and Eric of the Ranking 76 podcast to discuss the early life and political career of John Armstrong Jr. of New York up to the point when he was asked to join the administration of James Madison as Secretary of War. In this episode, we'll explore his tenure in the cabinet as well as his later career before evaluating his overall life and legacy. If you haven't listened to Ranking 76 yet, be sure to do so once you get done with this episode. In their podcast. Eric and Matt are exploring the heroes and villains of the American West and have had great episodes thus far on figures like Billy the Kid, Calamity Jane, and Sitting Bull that you may have heard of, as well as others such as Bass Reeves, Olive Oatman, and John Wesley Harden that may not be household names but led fascinating lives. You can find out more information about their podcast on their website, ranking76.wordpress.com, And I'll have a link to their website on the page for this episode on my website, presidenciespodcast.com. You can also search for Ranking 76 wherever you get your podcast. One other note. In this episode, I discuss a general whose last name is W-I-N-D-E-R. While I believe that his name is pronounced Winder, and it was my intent to pronounce it as such, I noticed while editing that I pronounced it in the episode Winder. My apologies for that. Without further ado, let's get to the episode after this brief message. Coming up on
1: 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not. It's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because... The news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased, and essential world news
0: daily. So Armstrong did not come into the post expecting it to be easy. He wrote to a friend on January 25th, 1813 that, quote, the office to which I am destined is full of drudgery and environed by perils. If the result of its management be fortunate, there will be little praise, and if unfortunate, extreme censure. He also realized that he had no friends among his cabinet colleagues and that he was far from Madison's first choice for the post. <laughs> Still, he made his arrangements, traveled to Washington, D.C., and assumed office as Secretary of War on February 5, 1813. He found a War Department waiting for him in a state of disorder because though Congress had put in place new infrastructures in the department in 1812, including the quartermaster department, the Ordnance department, and the position of commissary general of purchases in Philadelphia in order to help to ease the burden of the Secretary of War in administering the wartime military, as noted by Skeen, quote, unfortunately, the supply functions frequently overlapped or they duplicated each other's work, requiring the Secretary of War to arbitrate thereby adding to his burdens. Hmm. Eustace, who had only had a chief clerk and seven clerks to help him in Washington, had been completely overwhelmed and over his head, You know, as discussed in his episode of the special series. Noting the issues with trying to manage the supply functions, Congress on March 3rd, 1813, created a position of Superintendent General of Military Supplies, which would be based in Washington, support the Secretary in the arbitration and coordination of efforts. Armstrong would also have paymaster and accountant offices to support the War Department's efforts. So finally, they're starting to get some of the infrastructure in place that will make things easier for the Secretary of War to think of other things than trying to sort out all these minor issues. But with a supply and finance structure in place, now it came time to organize the actual military. A month after Armstrong took office, the general staff bill based on the recommendations of the previous acting Secretary of War, James Monroe, was passed. With this bill, quote, the adjutant and inspector general with the rank of brigadier general was assigned to the principal army and the act specified the number of deputies and assistant adjutants and inspectors authorized in the army. And so this also created a hospital department to be headed by a physician and surgeon general. And, quote, the Secretary of War was given responsibility for preparing general regulations to define and prescribe the respective duties of the various departments. It was finally starting to feel like a real army. Mm. Though, as noted by Skeen, these additional offices, quote, fell short of being a general staff. As constituted, it was essentially a housekeeping staff. So, Moving towards what we think of in the modern day as an army, but not really there just yet. On Hmm. February 24th, 1813, Congress authorized an increase in the number of general officers to eight major generals and 16 brigadier generals. Armstrong coordinated with President Madison to make these appointments. Of the eight major generals, the youngest was William Henry Harrison at age 40. Skeen asserts that the rest, quote, were old men without much vigor. Hmm. So, things are improving, but there's still some areas of concern.
1: So, do you get the sense, like, so he's organizing, He he's improving the department, essentially. Mm. But is that because, like, literally it couldn't have gotten lower? Or, and so, like, anyone could have organized it at that point?
0: Pretty much. They were in need of... Everything. okay. And so they're starting to build up. Not there yet. And let's see how Armstrong does with dealing with this new infrastructure. (laughs) Despite its faults, this new infrastructure did give Armstrong enough to get to work. And one of his first tasks was establishing the rules and regulations of the Army of the United States, which were announced on May 1st, 1813 and quote, laid down the rank and regiments and officers, rules with regards to promotions, and the duties of different staff departments. Along with getting new general officers into place, Armstrong also devised a plan where the nation was divided into nine military districts and set about appointing officers in charge of each supported by a staff. However, except for the northern district, which was still under the command of the ranking officer, General Dearborn, The rest were primarily focused on defense. Now, this northern district was rather a sore spot after the dismal failure of the three-pronged strategy employed under his predecessor, Eustace, and as discussed in Eustace's episode. Armstrong, prior to taking his post, had sent his own words of advice to Eustace, so now that he was Secretary of War, he intended to put his own recommendations to good use. On February 8th, 1813, Armstrong presented his plan for the campaign of 1813 to the cabinet. As with the plan of 1812, it was aimed north, but Armstrong focused on the Canadian town of, quote, Kingston and the destruction of the British ships stationed at the head of the St. Lawrence. If the shipyard at York, which is modern day Toronto, or Forts George or Erie could be taken as well, that's great. Mm but these are really secondary or tertiary targets. They were really focused on Kingston Mm -hmm. because this would give the U.S. control of the outflow from Lake Ontario down the St. Lawrence River and would help to disrupt British dominance of the Great Lakes as it would sever that lifeline provided to interior settlements. Sounds like a good plan. Congress thought so as well. They approved it. Get to work. As noted by Skeen, quote, Armstrong's efforts to get the expedition underway were commendable, But he soon revealed a fatal flaw in his character, indecisiveness. Goody. Before long, he was sending suggestions of diverting part of the force being assembled off on other missions and counteracting orders which had been sent initially, which created confusion amongst the commanders in the field. Which of these orders that we're receiving are the ones that we're actually supposed to follow? And... What was he giving them discretion to decide on their own? Because at this point, communication, it takes a bit. You know, they're Uh in the, the roads aren't that great. They really need to be empowered to make some decisions on their own. But it's just not clear what their scope is and what they're really supposed to be doing. Huh. Meanwhile, the British make the first move. And they cross into northern New York on February 23rd prompting a rethink of troop movements.
1: So his indecisiveness allowed the British to take action. Yes. Okay. That's. So they identified the problem and they they're getting like, okay, this, this is not a military district, but like this guy's in charge of this area, this area, this area. Okay, great. We're set. Now what? And he just hymns and haws and says, I don't know. What do you want to do?
0: Well, and that's the thing, like he came up with this plan, but as soon as they, they agreed to the plan, he was like, well, know, yeah, maybe we'll revise that a little bit. Maybe we'll do this or maybe we'll do that. Uh, no, wait, no, wait. Ignore what I just said. Do the other thing. Yeah. Uh. It didn't help that General Dearborn in the field was severely overestimating the size of the army force at Kingston and thus misinterpreting their intentions. So he and Commodore Isaac Chauncey recommended in mid-March that the plans be altered to attack York first, then proceed to Fort George before finally attacking Kingston. Armstrong agreed to this new plan and on April 8th gave Dearborn command of the expedition. So they had this plan before even really getting it out of the gate. They're completely changing the plan. Right. Oh boy. (laughs)
1: This is not going
0: well. Meanwhile, let's turn to the West. Because Brigadier General James Winchester had already suffered a disastrous defeat on the Raisin River on January 21st, ending any possibility of a successful winter campaign on that front. Thus, Armstrong instructed General William Henry Harrison on March 5th to, quote, not engage in any offensive measures except for continuing demonstrations against the British Post at Fort Malden, to keep up the enemy's alarm. So basically he was saying. Harrison just maintain. Just don't mm-hmm. do anything. Also very important here. Armstrong told Harrison. Don't call up any more militia. And actually while you're at it. Just cut down on spending. You don't hear that during. Hey, we're in House
2: the middle of the, of the war. But uh, go ahead and you just need to cut here. Cut here. Shave a little of that off.
0: Yeah, and so you can imagine how Harrison and the governors of the western states and territories felt about this. Supply problems would also preoccupy a good portion of Armstrong's time because the supply system was described by Skeen as follows. Quote, provision for the army were supplied in three ways. Food was provided by civilian contractors. The purchasing department in Philadelphia supplied arms, ammunition, clothing, and accoutrements. And the Quartermaster Department was authorized to buy riding horses, pack horses, teams, wagons, and forage. Now, the Quartermasters were responsible for transportation, but they didn't coordinate with one another unless they were directed to do so by the Secretary of War. Oh, God. The local food contractors, though their contracts made them, quote-unquote, theoretically responsible for not meeting a requisition as stipulated in the contract, were not held to account when their commissaries had to purchase rations on their own, quote, they were usually much more expensive than the price fixed with the contractor. So basically, there was little accountability and frequent, quote, complaints of waste and misapplication of government property. And Skeen notes that, quote, the want, the waste, and the inefficiency in supplying the armies was an important reason for their many failures. So he won,
1: so won, it, the first part of that. He wanted to give permission for, was it the, the, the civilian contractors? Is that what it was? Or the civilian contractors could just do whatever they wanted and hijack their prices?
0: And basically that's what happened. Like they had in the contracts that they weren't supposed to do that, but they just went ahead and did it anyway. And there really wasn't much reinforcement of the contract.
1: Is there anything, and not to play devil's advocate, was there anything he could have done? Like, what was, what could he have done? What he could he have just taken the entire, like, take him whatever he wanted anyway and say, here's what we're giving you. I guess that's been done plenty of times, but.
0: Well, and and part of the issue was all of this waste and all of this excess, the budget was in shambles. Right. I mean, there was just no money and they had to think about, and especially Armstrong, Mr. Newberg Conspiracy Armstrong knows what happens whenever you don't pay the soldiers. Mm -hmm. So that's got to be priority. But how do we make sure that we have money for that? Let's go ahead. And that's part of the reason why he was telling Harrison, you know, don't drop any more militia. We can't afford to pay anybody else. I'm trying to sort things out here, but it's a mess. That is so different from literally every other war. Like nobody
1: cares about the budget except for in this case. I boy, that's tough.
0: Yeah, and when we talk about some of the secretaries of the treasury during this time, we'll see why they there were such funding issues. Mm. But needless to say, there's just There was nothing. Basically, Armstrong was having to pick and choose where to cut funding to divert the budget in other directions. He was robbing Peter to pay Paul. Hmm. One of the areas that saw massive cuts was coastal defense fortifications. Now, just hold on to that, and we'll see how that works out. Skeen does note that, quote, Armstrong followed a consistent policy in allocating War Department funds. His strategy of war called for the reduction of Canada, and this naturally led him to concentrate his meager resources in that effort. So he was really prioritizing this northern campaign. Mm -hmm. Another problem at this time was also recruitment. Congress had actually authorized an army force of 36,700, but when Armstrong assumed his post in February 1813, Quote, the regular army was at scarcely half the authorized strength. Further, that January, Congress had authorized an additional 20 regiments to be recruited on one-year enlistments. But even this, like, they kept saying we want more folks and authorizing it, but nobody was volunteering. Mm -hmm. As noted by Skeen, quote, public apathy and personal preferences for the easier service of the militia were reasons for the failure to recruit an adequate army. Westerners in particular showed a strong disinclination for the regular army. So that,
1: that's interesting. I'll be interested when you when you get to your narrative series on it, because or when that's on the treasuries, because he doesn't want Harrison to raise more troops, but they have a recruitment issue. Mm-hmm. How? Like how? Like <laughs> don't raise more troops, but we need more troops.
0: And so basically, this speaks to the difference between like the regular army, which are the folks who actually receive training and, Mm -hmm. you know, they're, they're in the army versus the militia who Mm -hmm. are called upon when we need to. And they usually receive less pay, but, you know, still a good pay, but they're not as well trained and they're pretty unreliable. Mm -hmm. But folks are like, you know, that, that easier service and we'll still get money for it. We'll Mm -hmm. do that thing. Right. And so that's why he's really trying to draw folks towards the regular army versus the militia, because we can actually train them. It's going to cost a little more, but we know that we can use these forces versus the militia, where it's it can be touch and go. To, to coin to us, sure, that's fair exactly. Point. Armstrong ultimately proposed to President Madison, quote, the dramatic resort to conscription as the only means of raising an army competent. To win the war. So at this point in American history, you know, being that citizen soldier of volunteering is seen as important. But Armstrong is saying the only way that we can fill the ranks is if we enact conscription. Hmm. Despite the objections of Secretary of State Monroe and Secretary of the Navy William Jones, the president did permit Armstrong to put his conscription plan before Congress. Congress wasn't too keen on this, thinking people are not going to like this, and instead, quote, merely raised the bounty for recruitment.
1: But they don't have the money to pay the bounty, to increase the bounty. Interesting. This is such a cluster of a
0: war. Unbelievable. It's, (laughs) It's a cluster. And then meanwhile, in his planning for the war effort, Armstrong received criticism from state governors for his unwillingness to sanction most militia calls. He cited limited funds as his reasoning, but the governors, they were like, look, we just need these folks for defense. You're undermining, you're threatening our security. Though the Kentucky militia force of 5,000 called up in 1813 had been critical in a campaign in the West, by the fall of 1814, they had still not been paid, quote, due to Armstrong's objection to the excessive cost of the force. But despite his doubts about the effectiveness and efficiency of the militia forces, ultimately, quote, 30,000 militiamen were called in service during 1813. And basically, you know, Harrison and the Western governors were like, we don't care that you're telling us we can't call up the militia. We're calling up the militia. Yep. And what are you going to do? You and your army that you can't recruit for. Right. <laughs> 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 yeah, yeah. <Na-na-na-na-na-na>. <laughs> <laughs> and Harrison after receiving his orders from Armstrong wrote back on March 27th that quote I must confess that the idea never occurred to me that the government would be unwilling to keep in the field at least the semblance of an army of militia until the regular troops could be raised And so with no help from Armstrong, Harrison took it upon himself to make preparation for an expected attack by the British on Fort Meigs. And as noted by Skeen, quote, but for the exertions of General Harrison, another disaster might have befallen the Northwest and he, i.e. Armstrong, would have been chiefly responsible. So for the remainder of their respective services, Armstrong and Harrison would be at loggerheads and neither had much of any respect for the other. Meanwhile, Armstrong was ending up on the wrong side of another leader of the West shortly after taking office. President Madison had authorized the governor of Tennessee to call out 1,500 militia to participate in military action to take Florida, and the head of the Tennessee militia at the time was Andrew Jackson. He's here. He's here. And Jackson, as always with things military, took this charge seriously. And he didn't stop at 1,500. He recruited 2,000 militia forces and started marching them south. General James Wilkinson, here's James Wilkinson too. (laughs) So at this point, he's in charge in the south, in New Orleans. And he actually orders Jackson and his forces to stop at Natchez as he, quote, had no desire to have this force placed upon his short supplies. Meanwhile, Armstrong sent orders, soon after assuming office, for Jackson's force to be dismissed. So, they didn't even make it to their goal. They're stuck at Natchez, and then Jackson receives orders, send everybody home. Jackson was none too pleased, and wrote back, quote, that his brave men deserved a better fate than being dismissed 800 miles from home, deprived of arms, tents, and supplies for the sick. And he made a point of saying, Armstrong may, and the U.S. government may may be willing to abandon you. I'm not going to. He told Armstrong he was going to march them back, and if the government didn't pay for this return trip, he'd, quote, borrow the money from the Nashville bank himself. Oh. Like,
1: he's going to rob the bank, or he's going to use his own money from that bank?
0: <laughs> he's just going to take the money from the bank. <laughs> okay,
1: so, but the 180 of this guy demanding for for pay, and now he has a general threatening to rob a bank to pay his soldiers.
0: Now, to be fair to him, Armstrong did plan on paying, and the government did end up paying the bill, but... He had just neglected to say so in his orders to Jackson and thus ended up causing undue anxiety. Mm, to a man. Yeah. A man. Like, yeah. I mean, Armstrong is just creating confusion in the orders that he's sending out.
1: Huh. And you're saying this is the results you get after being the fifth option, you say?
0: Yeah. Who is the could fifth have seen option?
1: Yeah. <laughs> who could have seen this coming? So he has two generals in the field right now that have already said, uh, one, I will rob a bank if you don't pay for it. He's already, and Jackson recruited 500 more men than he was required or asked to. And then you have Harrison, who is just raising his own army because he can't get a proper answer. Yeah. Huh. <laughs> Two of the nine districts are uh, two of the nine generals. Is that what what the number was? There were nine that were separated out? Yes.
0: (laughs) Okay. Meanwhile, on the northern front. The third general. (laughs) Armstrong took a heavy-handed approach with his relations with the commanding officers in the field. As described by Skeen, quote, Armstrong not only assumed many of the prerogatives of a military commander, he also indicated that he did not intend to be a mere agency for communicating policy to the various commanders. Especially thinking of his approach to the Western Front, this was out of step. You know, he basically was like, with everybody else, I don't really care about you, but in this case, I'm really going to care. In Armstrong's plan for the military action in the North, quote, instead of a realistic appraisal of the various factors, including the possibility of failure, he appeared to be engaged in wishful thinking. So, though Dearborn's altered plans for the 1813 campaign had initial success with the capture of York on April 27th and of Fort George on May 27th, Dearborn soon fell ill and turned over command temporarily to General Morgan Lewis, who delayed in proceeding with plans and thus ended up getting routed by the British, ending their progress. Ultimately, Dearborn would be removed from command due to his ill health and was replaced by our old friend, General James Wilkinson. Here he is again. Of course. Meanwhile, the British attacked the American headquarters and primary shipyard on Lake Ontario, Sackett's Harbor on May 27th. And though they inflicted damage, Brigadier General Jacob Brown was able to mount a defense to drive them off. When Wilkinson arrived in Washington on July 31st for a conference with the secretary, Armstrong informed him of the new strategy, which was, in fact, the old strategy. The forces at St. George would be moved to Sackett's Harbor, from which they would launch an attack on Kingston. So that's clear enough, right? We're back to Kingston. We want to take Kingston. (sighs) Then Armstrong started to get into the other options. Well, maybe instead of just attacking at Kingston, there might be a simultaneous charge made from Lake Champlain towards Montreal and are an attack on what's now modern-day Hamilton, Ontario, which could then open up another approach to Montreal. So Kingston was still the primary target, mind you, as Armstrong reminded Wilkinson when he made the suggestion of what's due, quote, If the forces were not immediately competent, to attack Kingston, you know, just, just go ahead, you know, let's, let's really focus in on Kingston, go ahead and attack Kingston and Montreal, or possibly Hamilton, then Montreal. Oh, just do one of those dealers
1: choice Yeah, what strategy.
0: And in mid 1813 Armstrong got permission from the president to go to the Northern front himself and he left Washington in August and would not return until December 25th. Now, why in the world would the Secretary of War go to the front, you might ask? Well, besides wanting to micromanage and be a part of the action, Armstrong knew that he needed to be on hand to keep Generals Wilkinson and Wade Hampton from getting bogged down in their mutual animosity to the detriment of the campaign. That's right, he had to be on hand to play referee between two generals. Oh, for God's sake. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Meanwhile, in the West, you've got Harrison and Oliver Hazard Perry, who are actually achieving success. So at this point, you have the Battle of Lake Erie, opens up the Western Front. Armstrong, for six weeks, showed no interest in any campaign to the West. He left them completely on their own. And so, on October 5th, Harrison led American forces in one of the few victories on land seen in the war, the Battle of the Thames. And, of course, Eric, sadly, this was where Tecumseh was killed. No, it didn't (laughs) happen. (laughs) And Armstrong had no contribution to this victory because he was off refereeing generals and micromanaging. (laughs) Just. It was only on November 3rd that Armstrong acknowledged Harrison by ordering him to bring his troops to Sackett's Harbor to help with the future attack on Kingston or wherever these troops are going to be going. (laughs) Yeah, one of the three. (laughs) Yeah. And meanwhile, General Wilkinson was reluctant to make this attack, and he kept trying to divert Armstrong from this, which, of course, with Armstrong was easy to do. And growing ever more frustrated with the situation, according to Skeen, Armstrong, quote, seriously considered taking command of the army himself.
1: Oh, yeah,
2: okay. (laughs) You know what? I'll do it myself. You won't do it. I'll just do it
0: myself. (laughs) And realizing that the season had grown too late for a successful assault on Kingston, Armstrong again changed plans to focus on an attack further downriver. Armstrong informed Wilkinson on October 9th that he had heard his objections and was now focused on Montreal as a, quote, safer and greater target. But now Wilkinson was ready to attack Kingston. He was (laughs) like, hold on, hold on. You remember all those arguments that you made that we should attack Kingston? Well, well, ditto. Here you go. (laughs) But at this point, Armstrong is focused on Montreal. And so Wilkinson and Hampton would have to coordinate to make these plans happen. Further, they would have to work together without their mediator there because Armstrong at the end of October set out to return to Washington. Now, rather than being prepared for a new campaign, Hampton was at the end of his rope. He had been pleading for more supplies and was concerned quote, about the rawness of his troops. However, he complied with orders and moved across the border to be in position to join Wilkinson's forces in an assault on Montreal. However, he was driven off by a smaller British force and retreated back to where Armstrong had directed huts to be built for his army on the American side of the border. Taking this as a sign, I mean, you built these huts for us, so obviously you never expected us to reach Montreal. Hampton wrote to the Secretary that, quote, the campaign I consider substantially at an end and tendered his resignation. So he's like, I'm done with this mess. This has been drama. I'm done. Wilkinson, being unaware of this, began to move his force towards Montreal and wrote to Hampton, quote, calling upon him to effect a junction of forces. Hampton replied and declined the call. So meanwhile, on October 11th, Wilkinson's troops were defeated at the Battle of Chrysler's Farm and the general called off the attack on Montreal. Thus, as Armstrong traveled south to return to the capital, his commanders were ready to call the campaign of 1813 quits. But the British launched another assault across the border at the Niagara frontier in December, which resulted in the burning of Buffalo, New York. Mm -hmm. So his first year in office is just going splendidly. A first year. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
1: And at the start, we said, like, oh, he's actually kind of helping a little bit. He's organized some. One year later, he has four generals who are either not listening to him or trying to fight each other. Yeah. Unbelievable.
0: Meanwhile, you've got Andrew Jackson down in the south, yet again in the field. And basically, you know, at this point, what is now dubbed the Creek War was starting to take effect, Armstrong did not care. Armstrong did not provide guidance, and so Jackson and the other commanders were left on their own to figure things out. Again, from Skeen, quote, the lack of direction from the War Department and the lack of a military commander to coordinate the actions of the various forces obviously contributed to the ineffectiveness of the campaign against the Creeks. Meanwhile, Armstrong's also making friends with his fellow cabinet members. As stated, Secretary of State James Monroe had assumed the post of the War Department temporarily between Eustace leaving and Armstrong taking the post. He really wanted a commission in the field. But when Armstrong took over, he offered Monroe a position as Major General with the caveat that he would serve under General Henry Dearborn. Monroe was a very prideful man, and mm-hmm. this was unacceptable. He wanted to be the one in charge. So he declined, and he held a grudge against Armstrong for what he perceived as a slight. Mm-hmm. Armstrong, for his part, thought that Monroe, quote, knew nothing of war and was without military experience. Armstrong said that. Armstrong said that of Monroe. That he's in, con- like, he doesn't
1: know what he's doing. Yes. Monroe doesn't know what he's doing. I, oh boy.
0: Yeah, he's really making friends. Yes, he is. So Monroe, at this point, does not like Armstrong. He's talking ill of Armstrong to the president. He also actively undermined Armstrong, including in late July 1813, where he had a secret meeting with General Wilkinson and, quote, offered his advice on the manor of conducting operations in the northern frontier. And meanwhile, while Armstrong was away on the northern front for all those months, Monroe, in Washington, D.C., exerted his influence on the War Department and basically started, well, there's nobody here in charge. I'll Hmm. just take charge. And Madison had to come in in October and make clear, no, Monroe, stay in your lane. You're at the State Department. Armstrong will be back. You need to just stay in your lane. And this is
1: after Monroe's already
0: left the
1: Secretary of War position, and now he's trying to get back into it?
0: Yeah, he's trying to be the de facto Secretary of War, Mm. because Armstrong's not there. So this tension is just building between these two. Monroe continues to push for Armstrong's ouster as Secretary of War. While Armstrong makes overtures to Federalists in Congress for support because he realized that he had little support in the Democratic-Republican camp. Neither had much success at this, but it's just, this is just, everywhere you turn, there's tension, there's drama. It's bad. On February 2nd, 1814, Armstrong turns in a report to Congress about the campaign of 1813. While Armstrong attempted to throw the blame on Generals Hampton and Wilkinson, quote, there was enough material included in the report to indicate that he had meddled far too much in the affairs of both generals. You know what? It was a bad campaign. Mistakes were made. And so Armstrong was like, okay, let's think of a new strategy for 1814. His focus at the beginning of the year was, quote, to gain control over Lake Ontario and Lake Champlain before further offensive operations were launched. The emphasis would be on the naval force on the Great Lakes. For the West, Armstrong recommended that, quote, friendly Indians should be conciliated, assured of their boundaries, and then let loose against the inhabitants along the British frontier. So he's like, let's really focus in on the Great Lakes and let's get some native allies to stir things up on the British frontier.
1: There's not many native allies in that area. (laughs) Uh, I don't know if they know this, but Harrison may have just killed the most charismatic leader in that area. And that's a tall order.
0: So you're starting to see some of the issues with Armstrong's plan. (laughs) 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 Yeah. As the new year began, Madison and Armstrong agreed that leadership at the top ranks of the army needed change, and thus they worked together to promote younger men with proven military ability versus the older officers that had heretofore been in command. But there were still some concerns in the halls' power that an overall military commander was needed to coordinate efforts, and thus a bill was introduced to quote direct the committee on military affairs to inquire into the expediency of empowering the president. To appoint a lieutenant general. Now, the person who put this bill forward intended for this to be Secretary of State Monroe. He was trying to create this position for Monroe. But Monroe hadn't been let in on this, and he thought it was being created for Armstrong. And so thus, they both work to defeat this bill. Hmm. Meanwhile, General Wilkinson from the Northern Theater continued to send proposed plans of attack from his winter quarters. And at first, Armstrong was adamant that Wilkinson defer any offensive action for the time being, and on January 20th, ordered him to withdraw the majority of his force to Plattsburgh, while General Jacob Brown would be ordered to take 2,000 men to Sackett's Harbor. Ten days later, he was writing Wilkinson about a plan to launch an offensive strike against the British forces on the Niagara Peninsula. In a month's time, Armstrong shifted his attention to General Brown, who was ordered on February 28th, quote, to cross the ice and capture Kingston.
1: Again with Kingston.
0: A little less than a month later, on March 24th, Armstrong sent a letter to Wilkinson, relieving him of command, quote, and announced a court of inquiry on charges of misconduct during the expedition the previous autumn. This whole thing is a mess. Like, this is just such a... (laughs) It it's like he I, wakes up every day and oh, I've got this great idea. I I'm almost at a loss
1: for words. <laughs> Just like it's a yeah. odd combination of micromanaging but letting Jackson and Harrison do whatever they want but like really focus on these three targets some oh my god. I cannot uh, working for this guy must have been unbearable.
0: Yeah. Yeah. But this letter about removing Wilkinson from command did not make it to Wilkinson before he led a force of 4,000 across the border, which was repelled by a British force of less than 500. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, God.
0: Around 150 American casualties were incurred during this battle, and Wilkinson, upon receiving Armstrong's letter, requested a general inquiry, likely hoping to get out of it as he had so many other times. This is a mess. This is an absolute mess. I, I, I just
1: don't know how. Is there no one at this point? Is there like, I know he's the fifth option. Uh, there's got to be someone better. Like, there has to be.
0: Just wait. There's oh, more.
1: God. Oh, good.
0: <laughs> so, just a couple of quick notes. So, Andrew Jackson is able to bring the Creek War to an end. In a way that's favorable for the U.S. Armstrong Mm -hmm. had nothing to do with that. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, General William Henry Harrison in the Northwestern Theater was getting frustrated with Armstrong's continued obstructionism and trying to undermine his authority. So, May 11th, he submits his resignation. So, one of the few generals that you have out there actually doing something productive is resigning.
1: Well, he just tried having Wilkinson resign, correct? Like he just called for an inquiry on him not too long ago?
0: Yeah. So this is just a mess. And as Skeen notes, quote, thus far, no comprehensive plan of campaign had been drafted for 1814. Operations had largely reflected a reaction to the circumstances with little view of any overall objective. And it wasn't until April 30th that Armstrong actually presented President Madison with a plan for the campaign season that year. That's a bit late, isn't it? I'm not a med- Four military. In. yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so now yeah. he's focused on the Niagara Peninsula. And basically, he was willing to accept that this may be the only gain made in 1814. But we're going to focus on this campaign and we'll do something there. I know it may come as a shock to you, President Madison is starting to have some doubts about (laughs) this. Just now? (laughs) Again from Skeen, quote, he, Madison, had given Armstrong virtually a free hand in the conduct of the War Department, and there is no doubt that Armstrong abused this privilege. But Madison is finally starting to see maybe he's going a bit too far.
1: So... Can I ask this is gonna seem like a very like silly, oversimplified question. So the War of 1812, Madison is a or yeah, Madison is a war president.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: What was he actually doing if he wasn't working with the
0: Secretary of War <laughs> during this time? So he and he was really managing things from a political front. He was trying to help with the Treasury. There was a lot going on. There was also diplomacy that they were dealing with. He trusted that Armstrong could handle things. And he was getting reports from him that, oh, you know, so-and-so's screwing up. But, you know, I think we're in a good place. But he finally realizes, this guy's blowing smoke. So how...
1: I'm sorry to interrupt you, but like how, how much of the Jackson success in the South and Harrison's success in the West, how much of that was propping up his record that Madison didn't, did Madison know he might not have had anything to do with it or.
0: You don't get the impression that he really realized just how little Armstrong was involved with the actual wins in the mm-hmm. war, but. When Armstrong came with his plan in 1814, Madison had many questions and suggestions. The force that Armstrong had requested, quote, was greater than I had relied upon. Likewise, it seemed to him that Armstrong's plans would rely upon a greater partnership with the Navy, and thus Madison strongly encouraged him to work with Secretary of the Navy William Jones to clear up their difficulties in terms of strategy and coordinate efforts. Armstrong, not understanding that his scope of authority had changed, proceeded as if proposed strategy had been approved, but he would quickly discover that the boundaries that he was operating in were much more narrow than they had been. As 1814 went on, more and more directives went from the president's house to the War Department office, and Madison began to scrutinize correspondence with key generals. So at this point, he's like, I'd actually like to look and see what you're communicating." with folks in the field about. On June 7th, Madison convened a meeting of his cabinet which would decide upon the war strategy for the year, and the emphasis in terms of the northern theater was on the Navy. Madison agreed more to Secretary Jones's proposals, though he did approve of Armstrong's plan of attacking Burlington in modern-day Ontario. Armstrong, however, had other plans. After the cabinet meeting, Armstrong sent General Brown instructions to quote keep his troops occupied, but included the question, quote, why not take Fort Erie and its garrison? Oh, no. He's changing plans again. Brown takes this as orders from Armstrong, and he organizes an assault to Fort Erie, which they did take on July 3rd, but though they would proceed to try and take more, on July 25th, Brown's forces were driven back to Fort Erie. Meanwhile, when Armstrong released a list of officers recommended by General Brown for Brevet promotion before Madison had signed them. So he's going ahead and releasing that all these folks had been given a promotion before Madison actually approved it. The president sent a rather pointed message on August 4th to Armstrong instructing that, quote, the Secretary of War will not in future permit commissions to be filled up in the office until it be ascertained that the appointments are approved. On August 13th, 1814, Madison sent Armstrong an official letter of reprimand. Quote, On viewing the course which the proceedings of the War Department have not unfrequently taken, I find that I owe it to my responsibility as well as to other considerations. To make some remarks on the relations in which the head of the department stands to the president and to lay down some rules for conducting the business of the department, which are dictated by the nature of those relations. In no uncertain terms, here are your boundaries. (laughs) Do not misstep.
1: I do like the idea of like an official letter of reprimand. (laughs) Just in case you're not getting it. This is official.
0: This is officially official.
2: I feel like it's one of the, the last, uh, it's either this, uh, the next time is going to be uh, you're out the door, bud. Right. This is the, uh, the final written
1: warning is what right. I'm getting out
0: <laughs> of this. <list>. Meanwhile. Uh-oh. <laughs> increasing reports of British regulars arriving in North America, including some perilously close to the nation's capital, are coming in. Oh, he pulled the coast. So, the British fleet had arrived off the coast of the U.S. in the spring of 1813, so the year prior. And in early May, a group of citizens from Alexandria, Georgetown, and Washington, D.C. met with Armstrong, quote, urging a more efficient defense for the district. Armstrong's response was, I'll have somebody look into it.
2: (laughs) But he took no
0: action. Oh, my gosh. In the spring of 1814, quote, A committee of bankers approached Armstrong once more, pleading with him to do something to prepare for the defense of the District of Columbia. They even offered a loan of $200,000 to fund the effort. We will give you the money, just do it. While Armstrong did accept the offer, the money wasn't scheduled to be transferred to the Treasury until August 24th. That will be a little too late, as we'll see in a second. To be fair, as we've said, Funds for the war effort were hard to come by, in general, and in Armstrong's mind, Washington, D.C., quote, offered no military objective of great importance. Thus, he felt the attack unlikely and redirected funds to what he felt were more beneficial efforts. But Armstrong did not read the room. He did not understand the importance of national pride in public relations. Meanwhile, there were reports of increased British activity in the Chesapeake, and so President Madison called together his cabinet on July 1st to discuss the defense of Washington. As a result of this meeting, the 10th Military District was created for defense of the Potomac region, and Brigadier General William Wender was put in command of a force of around 1,000 regular troops and around 2,000 militia forces, with an additional 10,000 militia, quote, to be held in readiness by the neighboring states. Armstrong did not approve of this, and so he did not get involved in the planning. Further, he bickered with Wender on calling out the militia. Wender wanted them called out immediately, but Armstrong ordered that they only be called out quote in case of actual or menaced invasion of the district. He also delayed in providing the general with a staff to aid in his efforts on August eighteenth, eighteen fourteen, News came that the British had entered the Poxetant River in southern Maryland and landed a force of around 4,000 4,500 at Benedict, Maryland. At this point, General Winder only had 250 troops in Bladensburg. The government in Washington sprung into action, and even Armstrong started to actually do something to support this effort. oh, no, 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 no. Although he continued to assert that the British target was Baltimore and not Washington, even though where they landed was much closer to Washington, and they were moving closer to Washington. Oh, by the morning of the twenty fourth, the British were now nine miles from Washington. (laughs) It's still Baltimore, guys. We're still going to Baltimore. Baltimore. They're gonna turn.
2: They're gonna turn. (laughs) They 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 mixed up the map. They they turned the wrong way. They
0: don't want the smoke. It's like a hurricane. It's going to turn. It's going (laughs) to (laughs) turn. When the British troops came into view, General Winder had 6,000 troops at his disposal at Bladensburg. But at this critical moment, he organized his force in a, quote, improper battlefield alignment. So the force was easily routed and the path to Washington, D.C. was clear for the British who arrived in the capital city that evening. Government officials, including Armstrong, had fled, and the British, after helping themselves to the dinner at the President's house that had been laid prior to Dolly Mm. Madison's evacuation, set most of the public buildings, including the Executive Mansion and the U.S. Capitol, on fire. The British Army abandoned the city on the 25th, but it wasn't until the 29th that Armstrong made his way back to the Capitol. President Madison and Secretary of State Monroe had arrived two days earlier. Do you think they were just sitting there,
2: wait as he arrived with like tapping their foot, arms crossed? Where is he
0: at? Where is he? (laughs) As described by Skeen, Armstrong quote, was openly and extensively denounced as a traitor and quote, (laughs) his, his effigy was drawn on the walls of the Capitol after its conflagration and suspend it from a gallows with the superscription of Armstrong the traitor.
1: Jeez. Oh, well, when, when you're responsible for the city being burned out. <laughs> the twist is Madison actually made half of them. <laughs> yes.
0: <laughs> That's what they were doing while they were waiting for Get him. Right. <laughs> <laughs> when he visited the camp of the city militia, they denounced him, having the evening before had a meeting where a resolution was adopted, pronouncing him, quote, the willing cause of the destruction of Washington. And they further pledged that they would no longer serve under his orders. Any authority he had was now gone. And so when Armstrong returned, he met with President Madison in the evening and offered to either resign or, quote, retire from the scene for a while And visit his family in New York. For a while. (laughs) For a while. (laughs) I'll just go away for a while. And then I'll come back. Madison's like, yeah, that a while is going to need to be forever, buddy. (laughs) So for some reason, Madison actually opted for the latter option. He's like, yeah, just spend some time with their family. That's fine. He felt that Armstrong was in part responsible for what had happened in Washington due to his lack of preparation. But... You know he's like okay mm. well i'm I'm just willing to let you leave for a bit, so the next day, Armstrong departed down for Baltimore. Well, the British aren't going
1: there now, so <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah, not, no, they're not going there now. <laughs> hold on, do you see hold on, Is that a British flag off in the distance <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> while there. While there, Armstrong wrote a letter to the editors of the Baltimore Patriot, which was published on September 3rd, outlining his defense. (laughs) Instead of accepting responsibility, he blamed the troops at Bladensburg. Oh. Vote. Oh, dear. If all the troops assembled at Bladensburg had been faithful to themselves and to their country, the enemy would have been beaten and the capital saved.
2: Oh, oh dear! I'm just gonna go uh, take a big old steamy pile on my men here. Excuse me a second.
0: It didn't take too long for him to realize <laughs> maybe I went a little too far because <laughs> the next day after that was published on September 4th, he wrote out his letter of resignation to Matt. <laughs> <laughs> so,
1: it, yeah. when your figure. Is being burned in effigy after the capital is burned down. And then you go basically up a highway to another city and say it was the men's fault.
0: <laughs> it's a bold strategy. Yeah. Yeah. As noted by skiing, quote, what is striking about Armstrong's dismissal is that he had no defenders. In the cabinet, only Secretary of the Treasury Campbell was willing to defend Armstrong, but he had little influence and was soon to resign.
2: So he resigned, too?
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: Well. I don't want this job anymore. I'm going to go against everyone. <laughs> Make yeah. it easier. The shame of defending Armstrong, which I was like, wait, what am I doing in life? I'm defending this guy. I need to quit. I'm clearly not in the right mental space.
0: And as we'll see in, Arm- in Campbell's episode... Yeah, he really wasn't. It oh was God. really <laughs> bad. It was bad. <laughs> so, naturally, Congress launched an investigation into the burning of Washington, which Armstrong thought would exonerate him, but which, quote, merely rendered a report recapitulating the event and made no effort to assign blame. So, while it didn't say Armstrong was responsible, it also didn't say that he wasn't responsible. Mm-hmm. And it wouldn't be until early 1816 that a defense of Armstrong would appear in print. Armstrong was accused of being the author of this, but it seems like it was the chief clerk of the Patent Office, William Eliot. And this pamphlet put the blame on the burning of Washington on General Winder, though President Madison and James Monroe were given their fair share of criticism as well. Armstrong wrote a piece denying authorship of this pamphlet, The Spectator. Though it seems that many contemporaries still felt that he was the author.
1: I don't know why, but I also feel like he's writing his author. By the way, I have this letter from George Washington saying <laughs> I was forgiven. That accounts for everything, right? It's not just that one circumstance. Yeah, I've
0: got I've got this letter from Washington. I've got this letter from Washington.
1: Get out of jail free. Signed George.
0: <laughs> like So needless to say, you know. He would occasionally publish things. He would have his opinions about politics. And in particular, he would go on to attack Monroe. He would go on to attack William Henry Harrison as they were rising in the political landscape. But really, he mostly stayed at home after this. (laughs) And he turned his attention to pursuits including, quote, agriculture, writing, studying, and occasional forays into polemics. He spent the majority of the remainder of his life on his estate, which was initially named La Bergerie, but ultimately named Rokeby after a poem by Sir Walter Scott. Hmm. And he was made financially secure through rents from other lands that he owned. John and Alita's first grandchild named John after its grandfather was born in the house in September 1815, and their daughter Margaret married William B. Astor, the son of John Jacob Astor there in May, 1818. Sadly, Rokeby was also the place where Alita passed away on Christmas Day, 1822. Hmm. And so really, you know, and you see Armstrong at this point, he's writing and occasionally writing articles that were published critical of other politicians. He was also involved. So there is a, one of the big historians at the time was Jarrett Sparks. And so he actually approached Armstrong as somebody who was involved in the Revolutionary War to get some of his, you know, feedback, what was going on at the time. Sparks would write of Armstrong that, quote, his opinions are decided and he expresses them ardently and strongly. His temperament is warm. And I think his imagination and the bias of his feelings give a turn to his opinions, not exactly in accordance with a rigid memory, very cool judgment. So he's delusional. It's what this didn't mean that sparks wouldn't go back to him, but he was kind of cautious about how much he really trusted what he was saying. And so, you know, he's at times he comes back and tries to defend his reputation, but really there's no coming back from this. Mm. In 1834, Armstrong suffered a personal loss, and the death by suicide of his 37-year-old son, Robert. In June 1836, under pressure from his daughter, Margaret, Armstrong sold the Rokeby estate to her husband, his son-in-law, William B. Astor. And later that year, he purchased a 247-acre farm outside of Baltimore, close to his son, Horatio, and had a house built on an eight-and-a-half-acre lot in Red Hook, New York, which was intended to be a summer home. By this point, though, his health was starting to suffer as noted by Skeen, quote, his healthy complaints were common enough for his age. He had frequent headaches, his old lament of pain and inflammation of the eyes continued to plague him, and there were his usual rheumatic cramps and pains of the joints. Finding it difficult to travel, Armstrong ultimately gave up his farm in Maryland to his son Henry with the intention of remaining in Red Hook. In the spring of 1839, however, Armstrong also gave Henry his house at Red Hook and would travel back and forth between Maryland and New York once more. When he returned to Red Hook in the summer of 1840, however, that would prove to be the end of Armstrong's travels up and down the East Coast. In March 1843, Armstrong fell severely ill to the point that Holy Communion was administered to him on March 28th. A few minutes before 1 p.m. on Saturday, April 1st, John Armstrong passed away in Red Hook. He was buried in the family burial vault in the Rhinebeck Cemetery. Now, an interesting point in terms of legacy, there's not really much in terms of physical legacy, but in terms of his lineage, of the seven children that they had, all of these seven lived to adulthood. Hmm. And Armstrong was only predeceased by the one son hmm. in 1834. One of his children, the last named William Armstrong, who was born in 1814, actually lived until 1902. Wow. So one of his kids lived into the 20th century. Mm. The only other point of legacy that I have is that when Napoleon commissioned Jean-Louis David to paint a scene of his coronation as emperor, there were only spaces for five members of the diplomatic corps to be painted into the audience watching the coronation. Armstrong was chosen as one of the five, and Mm. thus you can see him in that famous painting now hanging at the Louvre. Hmm. cool and that my friends is the life and career of john armstrong dear god initial thoughts
1: (laughs) what a character let me tell you what an absolute disaster of a man
0: (laughs) (laughs) so now we get the fun of being able to talk about (laughs) <laughs> his career starting with our whole picture category which looks at the overall career and character of this cabinet member we can each award 10 points maximum and so for the two of you your uh, points will be totaled then divide it by two and then we'll move forward from there so what are your thoughts on his overall career and character i think
2: he had a good i mean
0: I'm not saying he had,
2: uh, he was did well in the roles but he had a lot of here uh, me- he had many roles that he was able to attain. I mean senator a couple times and then the diplomat to France. Um so um as far as career goes I think he had a very
1: long career right, right? whether he wanted it or not. Um he he was essentially in public service from 1776 to 1814, uh, correct? Right. That's when he resigned. That, yeah. uh I mean, that's, I mean, quick math tells me that's 30 something years just in the public uh, eye. Now some of that's military. I don't, I don't like whenever you hear like somebody is so experienced, I don't know if experience is always good And I think, he I don't know, for some reason he comes across as like the,
2: to me, it's like the perfect example of like a fake it till you make it kind of guy. Like, he was always in these roles, just never really got it, you know, like, uh, I mean, shoot, uh, what did he say? Like, uh, he didn't like doing work, right? Yeah. (laughs) The work that needed to get done or he always put it aside. I mean, look how often he was just like, uh, worry about it later kind of thing. So. I think we,
1: um, I think we all kind of know a person in our lives that keeps getting promoted, <laughs> and nobody can comprehend why. And this guy just screams at that. And, and then when you look at his mentors, he didn't uh, really do much with Saint Clair, but Horatio Gates is never viewed at with anything more than like a chuckle after Saratoga. Which even then, you the Benedict Arnold. We don't need to get into that, obviously, but. Uh, He's using Horatio Gates as a mentor. Um He married, I mean, he, his father seemed to be like a hardworking, good person, but mm-hmm. I just don't know where, where this man learned from. And it shows.
0: Yeah. Well, and, you know, and I think y'all bring up some key points here, you know, on the one hand, Yes. He gets all these offices. He's in public service. He has all these opportunities, but then you go back. What did he actually do with them? It just ends up like every office that he's in, either he resigns quickly because he wants to do something else or it's just a mass of controversy and drama and intrigue and, not getting along with somebody and blaming everybody else. It's like, you know, what, what do we do with this? I mean, that's kind of right. It feels like he is a
2: bit of a potster. Like, I mean, geez, it's, I felt like every time he went to a new office, it was like someone knew he was bickering with or starting something with, I mean, even when there was a war going on, he's arguing about the gen with the generals that were
1: in the, like in the battles, like, it, it kind of seems to me like during that whole, as I'm kind of looking at my notes here, it takes him a while to get into a position and then he's in it for a while and then it's a hurried exit. So it's almost like they knew this guy was a walking disaster. This might not end well. They realize it and they kick him out. And then when there's literally no other options, they turn to him because at least he's been in a high ranking official or a person representative before. But man fool me once
0: <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's bad and and the fact that he was seriously considered as a contender for nomination as vice president
2: how did i think that was someone accidentally saying his name like thinking they were someone else <laughs> or, or, or maybe like
0: maybe him like in the background <laughs> <laughs> john armstrong <laughs> vice president <laughs>
1: Now he would have been like the perfect candidate because like let's be honest, the VP is not exactly a sought-after position. Maybe you just put him there <laughs> to like get rid of him, but then you have a Teddy Roosevelt situation where when that does happen, yeah. yeah can you imagine <laughs> him as president? Oh my god.
0: Yes, I'm I'm very glad I will go ahead and say that he does not get that bonus point here. Thank yeah. heavens <laughs> for all of us. <laughs> I don't think there would be a United States at that point. <laughs>
1: So even when he was in France, I and I when he was in France, he was trying to buy Florida from Spain but through France. Mm-hmm. And then he just decided, "Nope, I bo- I want them both to fight." And then he leaves. <laughs> yeah.
2: <laughs> he got mad at him. That was his MO, like you get mad at people. I I'm curious like how big I wonder if he had a big ego cuz he had to have, right? Because even when it's like Armstrong did this, ah, I, I think I'm going to take a little break, visit the fam. I'll be back soon. It's like, bro, everyone hates you.
0: Yeah, this, this is, and and that's the thing, like you see consistently through his life. This is the guy who, well, I led 40 folks. So call me general, <laughs> you know, he's going to use anything. He has this really inflated and, You just, you really get the sense from him. He does not get that he's ever done anything wrong. He just, it's always somebody else's fault. And, you know, I didn't go into too many details in his post cabinet career, but he he has times that he attacks Monroe. He starts to blame other folks for some of the failures in the war. He starts to try and say, Oh, well, I, you know, it's somebody else that did this. I did the good stuff. He just really has a sense of himself that he's done nothing wrong. So
1: maybe I'm just thinking too far. Like when you look at just like the presidents he dealt with, the le- he had a lesser let- Washington knew he was the author of the Newberg address. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was against the alien and sedition acts for Adams. He went, he, well, the whole thing with Jefferson kicking him out of the office as a diplomat. Uh, Madison fired him. He then had disagreements with Monroe and then ignored Jackson, who became president later. And then Harrison later, that is What? Five, uh, no, six presidents that had an issue with this one
0: man. (laughs) Well, and with Harrison, I will say I've got this quote. When Harrison was running for president in 1836, he told his son, even though he said he was going to vote for Harrison, quote, even his unfitness for the office gives me one security, that arising from a competent cabinet. This is a man who holds on to grudges. I mean, this is decades later and he's still, you know, that guy was so incompetent when I dealt with him, but you know, at least the cabinet will be good. He was incompetent. However, those were one of the few success stories in the war. Yeah. And I guess I'll vote for him. Yeah. So what are we thinking in terms of points? in terms of his overall career and character any (laughs) no i think in this uh for me
2: anyways uh, i mean uh, despite his many roles in his storied career um of terribleness i think his character is gonna outweigh what he did so i think i have to go on the lower side I'm thinking like a, I I
1: haven't decided yet. I'm thinking like a 3 or 4. I'm I'm trying to think of a success that he had. Um I don't I don't get how I don't know how I'm having trouble finding him a point because at what point did he succeed at anything?
0: And I will say that, you know, just the fact that he was involved in so many offices, so many points in history, you know, I, I think that he has to earn something, Uh but to Matt's point, his character and really what he does or lack thereof with these opportunities, that's what draws me down. Uh Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, just to finish off our point, I will give him a singular point for being in public service for that long. I'm going to I'm going to stick with three, three.
0: And I think I'm going to match Matt's three. I think it's just and it's really the fact that he was in all of these offices and, you know, became U.S. minister to France. Mm hmm. He did something, he had a career, but it's definitely not a stellar one by right. any stretch of the imagination. And so much of it was just he bumbled into an office. Mm-hmm. And so that gets him five points at the beginning. But now we've got to focus in on his time in the cabinet. Our go get around looks at the impact of the cabinet member during their time in the cabinet. And again, up to ten points
1: I mean <laughs> well, the capital was burned <laughs> Let's start there. it wasn't
2: even it wasn't even <laughs> that it was burned, it was that
0: they every like so many people blamed him <laughs> and i think I think arguably rightfully so, because he had opportunities to and whether it would have ultimately changed the course or not he actively worked against the defense of the nation's capital
2: it's not a big deal it's not a big deal only all the most important people are there
1: <laughs> and even when like what's funny to me in this in this round the successes of the war it was because he didn't wasn't involved the big disasters he was directly involved in not only like the burning, but like trying to referee the two the two generals up north.
2: He oh, like didn't even he pretended like uh, other stuff wasn't happening, like the stuff with uh, uh, Jackson and uh, yeah. the West,
1: right? Like, right, nothing's going on yeah. over there. I'm just going to focus. No, what I don't know is if one he didn't have a winning hand. Like the U.S. just there was. I don't know who could have made that a a good play, but it's almost like he just threw away his cards. He didn't even try playing his hand, or he played it so badly that it just turned into a disaster. Like, they couldn't recruit troops. He wanted to raise a general army, but militia were the only ones recruiting. He didn't want... Um, He gave his generals, what, three targets in one season to go after, told Harrison not to do anything and Jackson not to do anything where they just were insubordinate to him. Yeah. And this is all in like less than two years he was in this office.
0: Yeah. And and that's the thing. It's just. You know, this is. He. He it's almost like the game was poker and he was playing go fish. (laughs) You know, he just, he did not understand, didn't try to understand the magnitude of this. I mean, this was, there were multiple fronts happening simultaneously. And yes, that's a stretch for anybody to deal with. And yes, the system was not set up for success. You know, there were, so, there were so many problems and so much working against him. But instead of actually trying to make things better, he's off, you know, sending contradictory orders out to folks, confusing folks in the field, getting commanders in the field who are actually successful to the point that they say, I'm done, mm. I'm just, I'm quitting rather than, actually sticking around and trying to continue to make progress. I mean, this is, you almost... It's mind boggling that he wasn't intentionally trying to destroy the United States. (laughs) I mean, that's the only way this could get worse. If his, if his goal was the destruction of the United States, he's (laughs) accomplishing it.
1: The way he accomplished, if it was an active conspiracy that he wanted the U S to go down, they probably would have succeeded more.
0: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) He would have been a hero. And he's also getting into conflict with other cabinet members. You know, this at a time of war when there's a united front needed, he's picking battles with Monroe. He's ending up, he can't get along with other cabinet members. And he's even getting Madison to the point like Madison, and we see in previous episodes of this series, even when cabinet members are royally messing up, he's still giving them the benefit of the doubt that, oh, well, I know you're a nice guy. I know you're trying hard. But he's even finally getting to the point with Armstrong. No, this guy is really doing bad things. I I really do need to check his work and, Uh you know, be a little more involved and figure out what's going on and give him an official reprimand. Right. Of just saying these are your job duties. Not only the but... Boy, do this. Don't do this. Do not approve this without running it by me first.
2: So what are you thinking for a score?
1: I mean, could it have gotten worse?
0: And that's the thing. And, and, you know, yes, he had an impact. It wasn't a good impact. And, you know, it, it feels like. And that's what I'm struggling with here because he did have an impact. You know, this is almost like the conversation with Timothy Pickering. Mm -hmm. He was influential, but it was all bad.
1: (laughs) I mean, I, I don't know how I can give him a point. I don't, I can't even suss out a positive from his tenure as the secretary of war he organized it at the start it seemed like and but it just seemed like he he organized it that that much like just a little bit but that's the only positive i can think of so for that i i'm i'm going to go 0 cuz i just i can't see any positives other than that one's very small thing i'm going to do 1 okay one.
0: i'm going to go slightly higher okay Just because I do want to acknowledge he did have an impact. Mm -hmm. It was Mm -hmm. just, it was a bad impact, but he did have an impact. So I think I'm going to go with a three again. Okay. Which means that he is currently at the score of 8.5. And now we get to our hot seat round. This is the round that discusses any disgraceful behavior of or actions committed by the cabinet member. This disgrace does not have to be during their tenure of office in the cabinet. And we can take away up to 10 points.
2: Bro, you was a bad, I mean, (laughs) I don't want to say, I I will say, I don't think it's like a max, like a max point, but like he did a lot of disgraceful things for sure. I mean, the biggest one, I mean, not the biggest one, but a big one is writing those papers, right? Like, hey, let's go overthrow the government! Like, that's pretty uh,
1: pretty sus. <laughs> right. Um, professional, like, it, this is going to seem weird to say. It's not like I don't think he was like a great person, but he also was an absolute monster. He just seems incredibly incompetent while thinking he is the best person in the room. So it's all, all of the the stripes are all professional. Eh, I mean, boy, it's just so bad. Yeah. (laughs) I
2: think yeah, we can just chalk it up to being terrible at your job, right? <laughs> like,
1: dude, you are just awful, man. And won't acknowledge it. It doesn't mean you're a bad person. Oh, I don't know. You, I guess you, you made your wife live in a barn for a while. <laughs> she was mm-hmm. thrilled about that.
0: And, and you actively undermined other folks. You mm-hmm. did have a point. You where- want like i was just, you like wanted uh, france and spain to go to war <laughs> i mean uh well and and also and this gets back to the point the the newberg conspiracy you know was he actually concerned about the mm-hmm. welfare of the soldiers or was this just a power like play, a power yeah. play? He
1: does come across as, like, a great... Like, just a dissenter. It doesn't matter what the subject is. He's going to go with the opposite argument.
2: I mean, even when he retired, uh, you said, like, he would still occasionally publish... <laughs> like, publish, like... Oh, yeah, this dude. hmm Yeah, okay. Yeah, like yeah. him if you want.
1: I mean, I'm I'm struggling for a number here.
2: I'm thinking, like...
0: Negative. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> It's bad because he already doesn't have a lot of points, right? <laughs> and and he also actively worked against the defense of Washington D.C., right? This is true.
1: And then blame the soldiers when
0: it and then blame,
1: it, blame the soldiers. It
0: down. <laughs> it was the
1: soldiers' fault, not mine.
2: I'm gonna. I think it's like a, a negative six.
1: Yeah, I'm just going to match it cuz like I can see I mean you could throw any number above 6 and I'll agree with it. But yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I I think I think I'm going to join y'all in a negative 6 because it's just <laughs> Yes, there are worse. Yes, there are folks who you know, will actively work against the US government. Right. But this is about as close as you get to Messing everything up without actively working against the U.S.
1: (laughs) While trying to work for the government.
0: (laughs) (laughs) But he just overall, he was, he was trouble. He was drama. He had a massive ego and would not play with others. He just, he wanted everything, but didn't want to do anything. And Literally, people died because of that. Because of Mm -hmm. his unwillingness to just try and prosecute the war Mm -hmm. effectively. So with that, he is now at a negative (laughs) 3.5. But he does have an opportunity to pick up some more points because he is going to get Points For his tenure of office. But Eric, as you noted, that was not a long tenure of office. So he took office on February 5th, 1813. And he left office on September 27th, 1814. And we do round. And so he does get two points here. We do have our bonus points. So he could get an extra bonus point if he served in more than one full-time cabinet position, no, he was only secretary of war. He could earn a bonus point if he served in more than one presidential administration. And you will be surprised to hear that no other president wanted him in his cabinet after this. And as we previously said, he is not getting that bonus point for becoming president. Thank you very much. We are so
1: glad for that. Thank you, history.
0: And so that leaves him as the first cabinet member that we have covered in this series to end in the negative with negative 1.5 as a total. (laughs) Oh no. And now we come to the final question. After all I've shared about John Armstrong's life and career, what we've discussed Do you think that this cabinet member is notable enough or impactful enough to earn a seat at the table of the cabinet (laughs) all-stars? I will remember him.
1: (laughs) He's a bit short of all-star, though. (laughs) (laughs) Just a little.
2: He's at like the kids kids table. He's at the table they sit with like stuffed animals.
1: Like I don't I don't know what um how many people uh listen to baseball or watch baseball a lot, but there is a a, a line if you bat above below two hundred, it's called the Mendoza line, which is a guy back uh like early like nineteen hundreds of nineteen twenties that he batted below two hundred and that is viewed as incompetent. And I feel like Armstrong is the Mendoza line of cabinet members. <laughs> if you fail below this guy, it's really bad.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I agree. I, I don't think he in any way, shape or form is an all-star. He is definitely memorable, but not for anything that anybody would want to be remembered for. No. But with that... We have reached the end of this episode, and gentlemen, I cannot thank you enough for your insight, for your perspective, for this conversation, and just for your friendship and support. You know, one of the great things about being a history podcaster are other history podcasters, and I'm so thankful to have y'all in that sphere of my life. So thank you so much. Yeah.
1: Thank you, Jerry. Thank yes, you. Thank you. And just to kind of pay that forward to, I know, um, the first time we were on this, we did the Timothy Pickering episode. We had done, uh, a f- one recording was- and it didn't go well. <laughs> so, um, and Jerry still took a, a risk on us and has not been, has been everything you could ask for in a friend and as just a, a mentor and everything. So, um, Everybody that we have talked to has only said glowing things about Jerry, and it is well-earned. And I cannot imagine, as I'm looking at his wall of books, a better source, <laughs> more thoroughly researched podcast than the one you're listening to here. So, uh, Jerry, thank you for everything you have done for us. You have helped us out tremendously.
0: It's my pleasure. And I highly encourage everybody, if you have not listened to Ranking 76 yet, please do so. You will laugh, cry, fall in love, all the human things and much more in the context of the American West. There are so many fascinating characters that Matt and Eric explore on each episode. So as I said at the beginning, I will be posting information on my social media around the release of this episode. So check that out. You can go to the page for this episode. I'll have a link. Or you just search for the Ranking 76 podcast, anywhere fine podcast can be found. Gentlemen, thank you so much. And to our audience, thank you so much for listening. Until next time, stay safe and healthy. Be kind to one another and take care, dear friends. I'm Alison Holland